1: Number one, desirable I do what I want when I want And how I want it Leave you with that one in the air That's how, how I roll I got potential i On my true collective ball Famous, so, so famous Number one, desirable I do what I want when I want And how I want it Leave you with that one in the yeah, That's how, how I roll I got teachers, so I don't care about my yeah. no gold Better, so much better Flippin' incredible Always on the show So they know that I still got it And I never feel sorry Yeah, Top of the world <laughs> yeah top of the world yeah it's above the world yeah above the world above the world yeah it's above the world the world yeah top above the world when i hate him come like my fuse and then bam let us see you later i'm about to blow
2: Hi guys. Welcome to Ace Podcast Nation, the home of our original created series, My Story. This is series two, episode number three. Ace Podcast Nation, of course, your home to many other great shows and series featuring top guests, expert analysts, and more. My Story, like all our other shows and series, Available in video format at youtube.com Ace Podcast Nation. Please do subscribe, click that bell for notifications, and then you get a little text every time we upload or, or go live with our content or shows or interviews. And of course, you can get the audio versions at the usual podcast and radio platforms. Just search Ace Podcast Nation, and there's all over 400 shows on various subjects with various guests. But uh, my stories is a bit unique, as uh, we take our guests through their life and career, from their upbringing all the way to present day, as they uh, they share some memories and anecdotes along the way. Series one featured actors, footballers, broadcasters, authors, and more, and series two will be no different. But the tagline is simple: real conversations with the real people. And my guest today is a best-selling author, an investigative journalist. He's won uh, over. 24 journalistic awards, a regular analyst on major TV networks, appeared on Richard and Judy, Newsnight, BBC News, Sky Sports, Satanta, as well as being on Talk Sport, BBC 5, BBC Radio 5, Football Focus, Sunday Supplement Mm. and more. And of course, he has interviewed the great Pele. I am delighted to be joined once again by Mr Harry Harris. How are you, Harry?
0: It's a pleasure to be here, Sir.
2: Indeed, yes, yes indeed. I um, so obviously you've been on been on the channel before, where we we talked about your book on Emiliano Salah. You came on the, the football show as well, the live show on the Monday. Um, but today is going to be more about just you and your career, which I'm really excited to do because obviously when we've spoken about, or well, when we've spoken first, or when you've been on the shows first before, uh, it was very much focused on a particular subject, whether it was a book. Or, you know, or breaking news, uh, and I'm sure we'll, you know, we'll touch on that a bit later on as well. But um, what I like to do with these shows is start at the beginning and uh, have you tell us a little bit about kind of where you're from, your childhood, your upbringing. Where did it all begin for Harry Harris?
0: Oh, yes, let's think. Um, well, uh, East London, really, uh, where uh, in the old days they used to say that... Um, uh, East London and the Northeast is where you found a lot of footballers. Um, so I grew up there, uh, not far from the Crays. In fact, I do remember playing in a park opposite Mrs. Cray and kicking a ball into her garden. And um, uh, I wasn't really wanting to volunteer to go and get it back, but uh, as it was my fault, I had to. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, I played um, football in the same street as uh, Barry Siltman, who. Uh, as you know, played for um, Malcolm Ellison at Man City and uh, Terry Venom was at Crystal Palace. Um, I always thought I was much better than he was, but obviously he proved me completely wrong on that score.
2: Mm. Absolutely. So it's uh, obviously that area is, uh, that you've grown up and it's, it's full of uh, historical characters. And like you've mentioned, you know, the craze and things like that, that, that part of London is renowned for for people from all different fields and um, what was your schooling like did you go to schools around that area as well
0: well i went to davenant foundation school which uh was next to the salvation army i think it's now a college um and then just before sixth form uh, it moved out to uh, louton in essex um and i liked school so much that um, I, I traveled all the way from east london to louton in essex pretty hefty journey but uh really enjoyed it and um, ended up captain of my my school football team Um, and um, in in the lower sixth a year older than me um, I I was playing in goal actually Uh, and in that team was Dennis Rope who played fullback and Terry Brisley who played in midfield and um, uh, I had a Tottenham scout came to watch me but uh, I, I was so bad but they picked out Dennis Rove and Terry Grizzly and um, wanted to sign them.
2: No, there we go. So, was, um, was playing football something I which you sort of carried on then after school and stuff like that, or did it kind of stop there?
0: No, no. I, um, I, I, I really was interested in journalism as an alternative because I just couldn't believe, um, after all the money I spent on season tickets uh, watching at the old Hart Lane that um, someone would actually pay me to go and watch football. Um, <laughs> I thought that was quite intriguing. Um, but obviously you have to start off at the, at the bottom. So um, uh, I, I was forever popping into the local... Uh, in, in those days, you had a little local branch of the local paper in the High Road um, and, and taking them in a picture and a little article about the school sports day, school prize giving day. And when it, when it came to leaving school, it was almost like I turned up and they thought, oh, here he is, you might as well have a desk. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, I became quite, quite uh, well known in that little branch. But um, well, I could have gone to university, but the, um, the, the group paper gave me an apprenticeship. Um, and part of that was I, I could go to uh, Harlow College um, on a block release for three months, twice, uh, two blocks three months. Uh, in two years as well as had the job <clears throat> which I thought was, was, was perfect and, uh, and uh, off I went to, uh, to, to learn the trade you know to learn the things that journalists no longer need um, maybe you think they still do but you know shorthand is, uh, is of no consequence anymore uh, touch typing I still think touch typing is a great asset you know rather than prodding around with two fingers uh, I taught myself to touch type and Harlow um picked up, you know, um a shorthand speed of 120 to 150 words a minute, which I can still use, you know. Yeah. Um so um yeah, it was it was quite good, played in the Harlow college team. Um and, and it was great fun, I enjoyed it there.
2: Was it um like journalism and media, was that something which from a very early age you were had an interest in, or was it more it sort of developed in your teenage years?
0: I always always thought if I wasn't good enough, which I wasn't to play professional football, it would be fantastic to have a life um, following football, writing about football. Um, But before that, obviously, uh, the local paper, it was down to the uh, local priest to see what was going on there in the parish and the fire station, the local police station. Um, And uh, there was so little happening in Mountain High Road that one day, someone said to me, "Well, what we're we going to write about in this week's paper?" I no idea. He said, "I'll tell you what. Take a ladder, put it outside our front door, and do a survey about how superstitious they are in now. Who walks under the ladder? and Who walks around it?" They <laughs> <laughs> like that. And I've never forgotten that because it was just so so hilarious. <laughs>
2: yeah, I am. Um, when I was probably I must have been about ten, I reckon. Um, I was keen footballer and um, I think it must've been like a rainy day and I I must've said something about writing about football or journalism to my father. And I'm still not sure whether he, he told me to do this because he wanted me out the way and to be quiet or whether he was legitimately trying to guide me, but he said, all right, go and watch the football, which I would have done anyway. But he said, you know, take a pen and paper, make notes and then write a story about the game. I did it and I loved it, but I'm still not sure whether, like I said, he was trying to get me out of the way or whether he was, uh, you know, trying to guide me towards it. But unfortunately for me, anyway, my I lost my way of it in my teenage years and never really pursued it. But I'm very interested in journalism. And I, I look at some of the accomplishments which you've had, you know, along your career and some of the people you've had the pleasure of interviewing, the books you've written. It's uh it's, it's very very storied so obviously we're not going to be able to cover every single little bit but um we'll do our best to get as much in as possible so you were in the small branch um where did you sort of progress from there
0: um well it was quite funny really because um uh, while I was at, um, at the college, the the the, the um, local paper closed. I think it um, it shut down, uh, and that left me in a peculiar state. I was still kind of like being paid, but paid off while I was mm. still at college. Uh, but I got a, a position on a, another local paper, the North London Weekly Herald Group and uh, that was my dream come true because it was in Tottenham High Road. It was 500 yards from White Hart Lane. It was actually closer to White Hart Lane than the actual stadium because White Hart Lane is some distance from the, from the ground. And um, uh, I started off really uh, in that little branch because it was a, another situation where there was a small branch in Tottenham High Road um, but the paper covered Arsenal and it covered Tottenham uh, and, and all the junior and reserve teams um, and um, I, I, I was there obviously just arrived fresh from college so um, I started off on, on, on news a bit of news gathering um, but it, the, these papers were a stepping stone for certainly the London even News or Standard or the national papers and, and the, the guy who was on sport uh, left and, and obviously moved on to... Uh, uh, actually, to a, to I think it was a a Reading Evening paper, but certainly much bigger than the local papers. And they, everyone just said, "Well, who's who's going to be the sports editor? Any any anyone fancy the job?" Mm. <laughs> I put my hand up, and I've only been there three months. Uh, and before I knew it, I was a sports editor.
2: Wow! So I'm intrigued. Obviously, when you make that jump after that, um from you know from the, like the local papers up to a, a more sort of national or or a bigger um a bigger platform if you like do they approach you or do you you know kind of apply for the job i'm interested in how it works within the journalism world because you do see you know even these days you see uh journalists sort of going from one platform to another quite regularly so how does that work is it like a so like a, you know a normal nine to five job? If you want a new job, nine times out of ten, you've got to go and apply for it and interview for it and things like that. Whereas maybe more in the football world, it tends to be another company approaches the player or the member of staff to try mm-hmm. and you know get them involved or make the move. Is it similar in uh, journalism or is it probably a mix of the two?
0: No, I think. Um... It's, it's, it's almost like acting. How do you become uh, uh, a Hollywood superstar from doing re- repertory work on, on the stage around the country? Um, how does that happen? So it, it really is when I, my, my history teacher sort of doubled up as a careers teacher at school. And when I told him, well, look, I have fluffed it as a football. I'm not going to make that. I'd like to be a football writer. He looked at me. He was a very stern man, so he didn't laugh. He just looked at me as if I was raging mad and Mm -hmm. said, you've got no chance. (laughs) Mm
2: -hmm.
0: Um, So I I would say there is virtually no chance of of, of making that grade up because so very few are going to do that. So how I went about it was um, uh, uh, acquainting myself with um, a, a guy called Victor Elton who was a specialist in news gathering on the London Evening News. And uh, what I did is I contacted him and I supplied him at the end of each week on my local paper, the stories that emerged in my local papers. So I think it wasn't given anyway trade secrets. I just gave him the stories from the local paper and he used them um, invariably on, in, in his column. Um, because uh, on that local paper, I, I, I uh, became very, very close to Bill Nicholson, the manager and very few, if any journalists did. Uh, and I remember when the, the guy who was leaving uh, sports editor took me in to see Bill and said, here's my replacement, um, I'd like you to meet Harry. Um, and uh, Bill Nicholson looked at me and said, well, what, what would be your requirements now on the local paper you're covering Spurs and you're the sports editor, what would you like to do? I said, well, it'd be, it'd be good to come in once a week, so every Monday to speak to you, to get you know, an inside track on what's happening. And then um, so I can write my report with a bit of information from you, etc. Uh, etc. Et and uh, my my predecessor looked at Bill Nicholson and they looked at me, and I thought, what's going on here? They think I'm mad. Mm-hmm. Bill Nicholson said, Your predecessor saw me once a year, not once a week. Wow, wow. Of course, you um yeah, he, said, what, he said to me, Well, look, uh, he said, start off. Um, when the season starts, coming on the Monday, we'll see how we go. Um, he saw me every single Monday. Wow. All the seven years I was there. That's that's
2: impressive that because I can't imagine uh many guys were giving up that that time for journalists, you know, on a weekly basis. Do you know what I mean? Let's um I think that's a, a big thing. And obviously you um you wrote about Bill Nicholson, uh, you wrote a book, I believe, wasn't it? Uh, the boss is uh, partially on Bill Nicholson. Um, you've written so many books, it's hard to kind of keep track of them. There's so many, I was just looking at them then, just uh, before we started chatting, and it's just uh, it's a long, long list of some huge, huge names. Um, was- Only it, 80 books, so not many. Is it? <laughs> uh, Only
0: 80.
2: 80, Jesus. That is, that's a lot of books. And, and the thing is, there's some huge, huge names which you've written about. Um, was at, the, at that early stage of your kind of journalistic career, was, was writing a book an aim at that point or was that something which hadn't crossed your mind yet?
0: No, in fact, uh, while I was still in the local paper, um, I wrote my first book uh, with the Spurs physio at the time, Mike Varney. Uh, It was called The Treatment of Football Injuries. And I interviewed all sorts of people, including the England captain at the time, Jerry Francis, about how he had acupuncture treatment on his back. Um, And it was quite, uh, everyone thought at the time, an interesting book because it wasn't just about the physio's treatment of the injuries, which we adapted for Sunday morning players, so it could be popular. But the the kind of... um, developments in in medicine that some of the leading players were trying um, to alleviate their injuries uh, in a period where uh, you were completely unlike it is today. You don't have that kind of advancement where, you know, at those days, if you broke your leg, it could be a career-threatening, if not career-ending injury. Uh, If you had um, a bad ligament or cartilage injury invariably you would never play again, or, or wouldn't be anywhere near the same again. So players were turning to a variety of different methods to try and get themselves in, in, into into a condition which now we take for granted.
2: Of course, I was going to say, like you mentioned, acupuncture there for Jay Francis. That is something which even now not everybody would look to. So I think you know back then that would have been almost unheard of as a as a treatment. So I find that I find that fascinating. So that was your that was your first book. Um, When obviously you were speaking to to Bill Nicholson on a regular basis. Um, When do you feel from a personal point of view that your your journalistic career really started to take off in the direction that you wanted it to?
0: Well, I mean, the, the not just the local paper, but the national papers um, took an interest in me. So they, they were aware of what I was writing in the local paper was from a, a point of authority. It wasn't just what the local papers would normally do. Um, they could see that I had the inside track. Um, but you know, I, I would take that uh, Northumberland Weekly Herald paper to the club. Uh, published every Friday, I'll take it in on Thursday afternoon um, and I would distribute it because my my, um, my idea was it would be respected journalism, approved journalism, it would be something that I wanted people to see what I was doing that they would feel comfortable to, to provide me with it with the inside track. So um, I, I think I have become reasonably well known within Fleet Street at that point point. Um, I, went, I then moved up, oh, for personal reasons, um, to the Journal in Newcastle, which was part of the group that I was with anyway, and I spent a year there. Um, and um, they gave me non-league football to cover, Spenny Moore, Blythe Spartans. Uh, and I don't know whether it was me, but that year, Blythe Spartans reached the FA Cup quarter finals. At least they were in the draw. And they drew Arsenal but they had to beat Wrexham in the replay. And in the first game at Wrexham, they were winning and going through and Wrexham got a last minute corner. Um, They took the corner and they had a little goalkeeper, an ex-Newcastle goalkeeper, and he caught it somehow. And that should have been the end of the game. Whistle should have blown, end of the game. Lions was waving furiously. The corner flag had fallen over because it was very windy in Wrexham and insisted the corner was taken again. To the far post, center half, equalizer. So I was covering Blythe, the replay had to be moved to St. James's Park. There was such interest. It was the year that Newcastle were relegated. No no one could be bothered to go to St. James's Park by the end of the season, but at this stage, there was something like 20,000 people locked out of the stadium. Jeez. It was that big. So little old me we started off covering Spenny more and Blythe Spartans with, you know, two paragraphs, three paragraphs, 10 paragraphs, 15 paragraphs, I had the, I had the front page, the back page, it was unbelievable. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, I got a call uh, from the evening news, poor old Vic Routon, six months earlier had died from a heart attack, walking up, up a slope, you know, he wasn't very fit um, and they asked me to come and replace him. Wow. So, it seems like
2: you mentioned there about um, you used to distribute the paper, and because you wanted your work to your your, your journalism to be respected, and I think uh, journalists on the whole in the UK in 2021 and over the last probably 10 years or so, they get a lot of criticism, uh, and rightly so in some cases, um, for you know some of the things which are printed and stuff, and. I think one thing which has come across to me with with our conversations both you know on and off the shows we've done but also you know reading your books and and reading your articles is everything which you say and write uh, is with authority and is factual and you have got that insight into what you're talking about or what you're writing about and I feel like uh, more how can I put this without upsetting people I wish more journalists coming in like the young journalists coming into it would look at people like yourself see how you operate and how you work and do the same or you know or at least base their their their, their what can I say like their their work morals on it um because I look at some of the work you've done over the years And I look at some of the work which comes out more recently and it is different. It's a different world in 2021 because you also have, you know, you've got the internet and, and anyone can print anything, can't they? But yeah, it frustrates me sometimes when I read the newspapers. Um, But like I said, I always didn't, I always enjoy your work and I always enjoy your books because I know that they've been fully researched. Is that something which you look back on with pride that, you know, like uh, the the amount of work which you put into your books or your 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 articles, like everything is fully re- researched and factual. Like that must be something which is you can look back on with pride. Well,
0: yeah, yeah yes, indeed. But I I, I I really think the whole situation, the whole world has changed from when I started. No mobile phone, um, uh, and in those days, look you if you compare it to today, everything is controlled. It's controlled by uh, the big clubs, it's controlled by um, Premier League, the FA, uh, in the way they handle journalists, you know. In my day, there was it was very rare you had a head of communications in the media department, now you've got dozens of people in the media departments. So when I was uh, working, um, I had the manager's personal home telephone number, not his mobile, obviously, but his home telephone number. Um, and, and if I wanted to check anything, I'd ask him. I'd just ring him up and ask him. I, I can't imagine that happens today. Um, and most of the star players, I'd have their personal home numbers. Um, but Today, you sit in a you know, big auditorium, it's all sorted out for you, you speak to the manager along with everybody else in a controlled environment, the player might come in and that's in a controlled environment. Um, it, there wasn't so many controls in my time. You, you were able to go your own way if you wished. Yeah, that- that's, that's restricted that now. You, it, it's, a, it's a different kind of journalism, totally. So I've got two
2: questions, which are kind of the same, but for different eras. Um, So obviously, first and foremost, you mentioned back in the day, obviously, there was no mobile phones. I can imagine, or I can't imagine, I suppose I should say, uh, being a journalist without having a mobile phone must have been a very different and difficult world. But also in 2021, you must find that frustrating to not be able to just give a manager or a player a call to say, you know, check something, whatever it may be, like that's a very different world. Does that also make it quite difficult to, to do things the way you'd like?
0: No, because I, I, I still have managers' home telephone numbers, of players' home telephone numbers. Or, or their personal mobiles now. So yeah. no, no. no one bothered them on the landline. I'm not sure anyone has a landline. No, no. Uh, but no, no. I, I have the managers' mobiles and their e- well, e- emails and we text them. So I, I do still keep a personal contact with people, yeah. What about, um, how, how different was
2: it being a journalist pre-mobile phones and internet? Because obviously these days you can send things, articles, instantly text whatever it may be you couldn't do that uh, earlier in your career
0: like no, so how- no i've got a couple of amusing stories about that well one was in albania which is quite interesting because we're in england we playing albania um as we know in the world cup qualifier uh and um i went to albania before the england squad went um and how i got a visa is a story on its own but I got a visa in a very peculiar manner. I had to go to Paris to uh, be the only Albanian embassy in Europe. Um, and, and I got the invite uh, through Robert Maxwell, who was obviously the proprietor of the mirror, and I was on the mirror. And his contacts uh, throughout uh, certainly Eastern Europe, but the, but the world was just phenomenal. So this was set up for me. And I went with Monte Fresco. When we got the visa, and we went to Albania um, uh, long before any foreign journalists or any foreigners had gone to Albania, it was, it was peculiar. Um, but of course, there's <laughs> no phones at all. Um, yeah. And um, uh, when we actually got to Albania uh, as a media corps, um, there was two hotels in the. Opposite ends of the square. One was taken up on the England team, one was by the media. When I went there previously, I was in the England media team. But um, I shared with Colin Gibson, the Daily Telegraph, because he had to share the rooms. There were so few rooms in this tiny hotel, very basic. And of course, we got into our room and there's a telephone on, on the desk. And we went, oh, that's not bad, telephone. Uh, I said, no, no. I said, Colin, look, I came here to do a recce. You try it. Doesn't work. No connection. There was no connections to any of the phones in any of the rooms. The only connection to the outside world was a telephonist downstairs in the basement. And that was the only connection. So <clears throat> you would try and book a call to the office to file your story. And you, you could wait hours, literally hours for your turn, if indeed ever came through. Um, so there was one day the phone rang. We were getting a call through and Colin had popped out, I don't know, get a couple of beers, and I was in the shower. But you needed to get to that call because that was your only chance of getting out to the outside world. So I rushed out, I slipped on the mat, I went head over hills and ended upside down in the wardrobe. And Colin mm-hmm. came in and said, What the hell are you doing? I was trying to answer the phone. <laughs> of course I didn't, because of that connection. <laughs>
2: Yeah, it's a very, very different Have a mobile, wouldn't it? Have a mobile
0: in those days would be wonderful.
2: Oh, yes. uh, So, how did you, if you were doing, say, you were at a match, uh, you know, just doing a match report and you were watching the match, how would you get your report to, you know, to the paper or whatnot? Like post match?
0: Telephone. So you you just phone it through. Yeah. Wow. And back in those days, you had copy takers who would just sit there and type it all out as you dictated it.
2: Amazing.
0: That's, that's you had a computer, and that was a landline, and you plugged your computer in, and then you typed it in, and it went through your computer. Tandys were the first ones, and those connections were a bugger. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's, uh, um, so yeah. You know, it, was a, it was a test of your initiative to actually get your um, story from A to B.
2: Absolutely. I find it fascinating You because you obviously you've witnessed the change in technology, you know, as you've been going along your career. Um, I'm assuming it's a lot easier now to work to do such things because you can just email it and stuff. So um, do you miss kind of those days of, you know, where there was not media teams and and all these different things? It was more personal with footballers and, and, and managers and I, I know you can still you know you still speak to them and you can still contact them but like, as you mentioned like back then it was very there wasn't so many people between you as a journalist and the managers or the players or whoever it may be
0: no I hope I'm not going to sound like one of these old files who says, you know in my day it was so wonderful mm-hmm. but it, it, it wasn't Wonderful. It was more than that. It was a way of life. It was it was just an incredible time to be a a journalist, particularly a football writer. You you were part of the whole. You weren't outside looking in, trying to find the solutions or the answers and to report what you're looking at. You were part of what was happening. Um, You traveled with the England team or the football club. You were on the same plane. Um, But the football clubs used the the, the papers of those days to, to part if not whole, finance their journeys, because the press paid to be on that plane to be part of it. So you you would stand at the carousel with the luggage going round, standing next to whoever you know whoever it might be, Kevin Keegan, Alan Shearer, whoever whoever it might be, and stand there and have a chat, you know, and and collect your luggage and then off you go, Or, or you know you'd be in the come down in the lift and you're coming out and they're coming in you say how, how are you doing you know what's what's happened go oh my bloody leg! I don't think I'll make it tomorrow you know and you'd get an injury story you know personally speaking to people knowing people um, and you, you would keep an awful lot of secrets you know you would mm. um, you, you would because there wasn't this profusion of, of uh, the media it was just you as a chief football writer not news reporters or loads of other different reporters. Um, if something happened and you you were there to witness it by chance, um, you probably wouldn't report it. Yeah, I can tell you a number of stories about that, but um, mm-hmm. they look very amusing. But uh, I think it was a golden age, yeah. in my view, to, to be a football writer and to be in the
2: middle of it. Absolutely, it sounds it sounds incredible. It sounds a lot more personal. Than you know what perhaps football writers would do today. You know, like I said, with the communication teams and things like that. Um, with regards to your books, you mentioned you know you've written eighty of them. Um, do you have a favourite?
0: Well, that's a good question. Well, I mean, I've I've um, I've written books with uh, or about uh, Pele. Uh, George Best, Rod Goodit, uh, Glenn Hoddle. Um, And it does really make me feel um, uh, certainly pride to to have been involved personally with with people who were what I'd consider among the world's greatest ever players of their generation. Um, And to be so personally involved with them, uh, some of the stories that emerge as a consequence of that were far better than the books, I've got to tell you, <laughs> really, you could not make it up.
2: You've, um, yeah, you've written some some, some massive names, um, <coughs> excuse me, sorry, of course, you. I believe you interviewed Palais, didn't you?
0: Well, oh, I mean, um I was on holiday in La Manga. I mean, it was a, a favourite venue because the England teams went there, clubs went there. Uh, I spent so much time there, I decided to go on holiday there. And I, I, was, I, I took a book with me about Brazilian football and I was reading it and it just struck me. There was so little about Pelé in it. And I thought, well, that can't be right. You know, he is the world's greatest ever player and there's so little to read about. And I thought, mm. well, I can't. Uh, in those days I had a literary agent as you would, as you do. Don't anymore, don't need one. But um, I rang him up uh, and I just said, look, I'd like to write a book about Pelé. And he said to me, there there must be literally hundreds of Pelé books that he's written, people have written about him. Um, He said, I'll do some research in those days, still no mobiles, I couldn't do the research. He said, I'll do some research and I'll come back to you. He rang me the next day, he said, I can't believe it. There's only one book on Pelé. It was an autobiography he wrote um, in 1974, just at the point of his retirement. Um, although he did come back to play for Cosmos, so uh, and it was written by a Portuguese journalist in Portuguese and translated into English. So you can imagine the quality of the English version. Yeah. And um, he just said, "Well, you know, if you can write a book about Pele," so I said, "Well, I'll think about it." And I went, I went next time I saw him, and I saw him quite frequently. Because in those days, you did see people, you know, I went to, you know, you you knew people in the sponsors or people involved in in, in the world game. And they saw you as representatives of of, of England. So I was invited to all sorts of things like a a lunch with the world's journalists to meet Bobby Charlton and Pele and sit next to them, chat to them. to, um, the sponsors took me out to Rio to, to meet him to do a, a, an interview with him. Uh, obviously, you pl- plug Umbro and the shirts and everything else. He signed numerous shirts and then he signed two or three to me. Um, um, the sponsors took me to Frankfurt for, for a breakfast meeting with Pele. He was doing a promotional thing there and I took some pictures. They took some pictures of me and Pele at that promotional event and I interviewed him over breakfast. So um, next time I saw him, and I think it was may have been in Japan, um, I I had my my place booked in the queue of world journalists, uh, and got to see him did did my interview. And at the end of it, I said, Look, you know, um, I'd like to write a book about you, but I'm not going to do it unless you agree to. you know, the fact that I'll be writing about it, and as you know me so well, it will be, I think, very positive because, you know, I think that's how, the way I'd like to write the book. Um, he looked at me as if I was mad and he got up, so I got up and he gave me a great big hug and he said, I can't believe anyone would write, want to write a book about me.
2: Wow, that's incredible.
0: Really is. He was at that time he'd been going through a little dip in his popularity he'd come out of politics in Brazil he, he wasn't popular in Brazil for, for a period um, uh, he had a conflict with FIFA and he for the first time ever hadn't been involved in, in the World Cup draw um, and it was he probably felt as though he was on a little decline I don't know but he um, he gave, he gave me an interview, several interviews with the book. Um, uh, I spoke to several of um, the 1970 World Cup winning team when I was in Rio, interviewed them, um, and interviewed numerous people about it. Um, and that book came out many, many years ago, um, and only last year was, was actually printed in um, Vietnam in vietnamese wow. uh, it's the only book i've ever had in vietnam so there you Still. go it's been everywhere Been reprinted in america american versions of it it's been reprinted over the world incredible
2: this really is incredible like Pele to me is he's so iconic and i, I struggle to 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 imagine him like being surprised that someone wants to write a write a book about him simply because he's so iconic in my eyes, but I like, I've always, everything I've ever read about him is that he's a very humble man. He's um, you know, there's no sort of uh, ego to him or anything like that. He's, he's a very nice gentleman. Um, And it sounds like your experiences with him were very much along those lines.
0: Yeah. I mean, i I think I, I told him at the time I, I brought, when I saw him after the book was published. But in fact, I sent him the book or, through, or to his agents uh, and said, I want you to read it before it's published. Please tell me if there's anything in that book you think that's not right, for you, uh, I'll change it. Um, and they came back with half a dozen corrections, no more than that, on factual things. Yes. Um, and then I saw him and, and had photographs taken with, with the book, gave him a copy of the book. He didn't quite ask me to sign his book, but I asked him to sign, I sign my book, <laughs> mm-hmm. which I've got. Um, and um, I told him at the time, I said, look, this is a fantastic story. Your life story is unbelievable. Uh, and I think I've got a good insight into it by interviewing you and about various things and people about you. And I said, it won't be long before someone wants to write your actual autobiography. And of course, I think two years later, he, he was commissioned and paid an absolute fortune to do his autobiography. Um, I also uh, was involved in an opus book about Pele. Okay. um, And that was about 10 years ago. Those books were selling thousands of pounds then. Uh, and I've I've got a copy. uh, Part of my fee, most of my fee was a copy. Um, And um, I can't imagine there's many of those
2: left in the world. No, I wouldn't imagine so. Have you still got the shirts that he signed for
0: you? I still have on my wall. Um, let's
2: see if you can see them. Oh, well, this is some shirt. Talk us through those shirts, then, uh, Harry. That one there, I think you can see. Yeah, what's the uh, the England number seven? What's that one?
0: Have a guess at the England number seven. <laughs> <laughs> That's David Beckham's uh, England captain's shirt. He gave me.
2: Amazing. It's um, oh, the one. I know I'm kind of skipping between books and journalism, but it's all part of, you know, your story, really. Um, I was wondering, with your, the journalism side of things, or well, I suppose the books as well, has anyone ever been kind of uh, upset by anything that you've written or a story you've written or anything like that and kind of phoned you up and said, why have you written that, along those sort of lines? You don't necessarily have to name names if you don't want to, obviously if you kind of want to, but I just wondered... That must be part and parcel of being a journalist.
0: Well, um, after 35 years, well, 40 years of, of, of writing articles, I can't imagine how many there'd be. Hmm. Um, I'd like to say no, but I think you'd really need another hour, another programme to go through that list people. throw me up. <laughs> Give me a bollocking. <laughs> it's human
2: nature, though, isn't it? Like, if people... Like, when people... Uh, See something about themselves, which it, you know, maybe is not positive. This human nature to sort of want to defend yourself, I guess is the word. Um, you've obviously. You've goes, done... It
0: goes beyond that side because you, 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 right at the beginning, you, you talked about um, uh, my prowess of being an investigative journalist as well as well, whatever it might be. Absolutely. You, know, you do a big investigation, and uh, I did into numerous people. Um, uh, into Terry Venables and, and the amount of abuse I got at the time. Good job there wasn't social media at that time.
2: Yeah. Exactly.
0: Going go to a match, you know, the, the dogs abuse that I was getting um, by um, supporting Alan sugar uh, against Terry Venables, in my belief, uh, having done the investigation about the wrongdoing that was involved. Mm. Uh, and of course, um, as a consequence of that, Terry Venable's got a, a nine year ban of being a company director uh, for 11 criminal offences.
2: Was that difficult as a Tottenham fan as well to to do that investigation or was it very, were you, you know, able to sort of separate that from your, your love of the football club and just to purely, you know, you're just doing your job and the investigation goes where it goes as such?
0: Indeed. Um, And so you could imagine dear old Terry Venables who who, who I I still swear to this day I've got no grievance against but he he obviously imagined that I had a massive grievance against him so you can imagine his reaction. Um, I I did a big investigation into Chelsea and and, um, their illegal loans and how they were uh, buying players' houses at inflated prices to encourage them to uh, move to the Stamford Bridge Uh, and at that time they got a record Football League fine. What do you think old Ken Bates said to me? Yeah,
2: I <laughs> doubt he was too, uh, too happy with you, was
0: he? No, so uh, I was banned from Stanford Bridge uh, for a while. Um, well, banned from Stanford Bridge, and, you know, it's great. You know, you, the Daily Mirror took a picture of me outside, you know, the bars of the gates, can't get in. Yeah. And Ken Bates um, loved taking the piss, so uh, he named um, the, the um, press bar loo, Harry's bar. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But after a couple of years, you know, the the rift was healed. It's a long story how it was healed. Uh, And uh, 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 the the ban was lifted and I came back uh, for the first game of the season. And I walked through the press room doors and then you could hear a pin drop and I thought, what's going on here? You know, all the clatter from all the journalists in there, they all stopped as I walked through the door. Uh, and then at the corner of my eye, I could see Ken Bates. And I thought, what's he doing in the press room before a match? And all the journalists have gone quiet, <laughs> sunny up. He made a big announcement and presented me with the placard Harry's Bar from the Loom, <laughs> which I still have. Let me see. I it.
2: Amazing. That's incredible. That is. Like, that was, I love that. I really like that. I like the um, I like people like you've got a, a sense of humour, even, you know, even maybe when their feelings are hurt or they're a bit annoyed, you can still still laugh about these things. And particularly, you know, obviously you healed the rift afterwards. And um, you mentioned, obviously, you did an investigation into Terry Venables. Um, I believe you also did one into kind of FIFA corruption as well. Is that correct?
0: Um, I, I wasn't the leading one who did that. No, no that's uh, that was the Sunday Times. But yeah. uh, I wish I had. Um, but um, I did investigations of plenty of corruption in English football, and was very popular for that.
2: No, I was going to say that must be, when you're investigating things like that, which affects, can c- could affect uh, multiple clubs or the league generally. I can't imagine that you're particularly popular at that time, particularly at the height of the sort of investigation or the publicity of it. Like, you must be a fairly unpopular face within those football clubs.
0: Uh, for a time, uh, but um, I, I, I only for the people involved. Um, yeah. But it, it's really a question of, um, of degree, really. I mean, I, I, I remember doing an investigation about um, Chesterfield Uh, And I I can't even remember what it was about, but it was, it was um, uh, obviously it it made headline news. Um, And I I remember the players uh, had T-shirts made, uh, which they, after the last game of the season, they all lifted their shirts and underneath it read, we hate Harry Harris. (laughs) Wow. Wow. I don't even remember what the investigation was about. there've been so many, but um but of course it was proved to be correct and um you know and justifiable but they didn't they, you, you don't when you're the victim of it, you don't see it at the time
2: indeed yeah and um, and obviously we've talked about um before on previous shows about the book you wrote about emiliano sala and uh, and his death um so I, I don't also, to, you, know,
0: you know, from personal experience, look at the dog's abuse I took when that book first came out. Oh, God, gotcha. yeah. You know, why did you call it, you know, the, the title of the book, the, the content of the book, where, where are you going with it? Why, you know, all the Cardiff fans who were having a go at the, their own club for, for not having the uh, integrity to pay up on the fee. And here we are, more than two years afterwards. Who in their right mind would have paid that fee? Yeah, <laughs> knowing That's what we it. know now and what we're going to know very shortly, why would you pay that fee?
2: Absolutely. And I think when I that was when I when that book came out is when I first contacted you, and I kind of said, "Look, I would like to, you know, have a chat about the book." And then we we had a little chat beforehand and stuff, and then we did we chatted about the book. One of the things which struck me about that book is, look. There's a lot of things in that book which really shocked me uh, about the people involved and and some of their actions. Uh, And it's still they still they upset me and they uh, they anger me to this day. Um, But one of my favorite parts of that book, if there can be a favorite part of a book, which is about something so tragic, is the initial uh, sort of opening portion of the book where you talk about Emiliano Sala as a person. his upbringing. and his his kind of family life, if you like. Um, And to me, straight away, that that painted a picture that this was a book which was not designed to necessarily, you know, it wasn't designed to cause any damage or hurt the family or upset the family or anything like that. It was going to be about exposing uh, things which had happened and getting to the truth. And I do feel that, eventually when the truth all of the truth comes out about what has gone on and what has happened that that, that your book and your reports will be a big part of that because uh how can i write? not every i feel i do feel like it's kind of been forgotten about a little bit by certain parts of the media, particularly, oh, right. for me- anyway, so it's worth it's,
0: re- it's worth reading all over again because even last week I, I, I was involved in a social media spat with someone, uh, obviously from France, uh, sounded like a not supporter to me, um, and, and was giving me almighty stick about um, uh, you know the content of the book and the book. My stance on all this, and he was still still banging on about how nonce were the injured party and that Cardiff should be paying up on the transfer fee. And um, you know, uh, here's a picture of the, of the of the player signing his contract. Uh, it had been authorized by FIFA level, FIFA, and you're telling me that you know the Premier League didn't authorize it. You're talking about FIFA against the Premier League. Clearly, you you would take the side of FIFA. And I said, and I replied to him, really? FIFA? And you just mentioned the investigation into FIFA, not by me, by the Sunday Times, and the amount of corruption. And, and even this week, uh, a, a second eight-year ban for Blatter and yeah. one of his cohorts. A second eight-year stint. Incredible. you really just just finishing the first. No, and, and someone's got the nerve to tell me that what happens at FIFA... Is, is, is the gospel, it is, is absolute gospel, and it's, no you know, the integrity lies within. So, I said to him, Really, if that's the line you're going through, I can't really continue the
2: conversation. Yeah, it does. Uh, that's not that's not the hill, uh, that I'd be wanting to go to. Um, yeah, and I, um, one of the books which I'm looking forward to reading, I haven't read yet, is the one on Maradona, um, which you wrote. Uh, tell me a little bit about that one because obviously. Uh, been widely uh, celebrated after his death uh, in the last year or so, Um, what was that book like to read? And did you ever get to to interview Diego Maradona?
0: Well, the the reason I wrote the book was because you know uh, there's been so many books written about him, um, but uh, you don't really want to boast about these things. But how many? Journalists around the world have actually sat down for an hour or so and, and spoken to him at great length. How many British journalists have ever done that? You know, they may yeah. they might have been a group in, in, in you know, these controlled situations where a group of people may have spoken to him for five minutes or two minutes, but how many people have sat, actually sat down with him and spoken to him at great length, a one to one interview? So, you know, not saying I knew him profoundly, but. No, of course. Um, um, and that. Happened when um, he came over to London prior to the World Cup, where you know, the infamous World Cup of his hand of gold oh, It was only three months before that he came over to England to play in Ozil's um, uh, testimonial, and um, the Argentinian manager said to him, "They were playing, I think it was maybe in Switzerland, something like that." And um, the next friendly warm-up game was in Israel, so they were going from the European friendly match straight on a plane, or off to Israel. And he said, uh, no, I'm not coming with you, I'm going to London, and, and coach, what? He said, we're, we're preparing for a World Cup, we've got Friendly here to prepare, and then we're going off to Israel to prepare, and you're in the squad, you're coming with me. He said, no, I'm going to London. He said, you can't do it. He said, I'm off, <coughs> and off he went. Um, played in the game, and then the next day, went off to Israel, met up with them in Israel. Can you imagine that ever happening? Mm. Anyway, uh, along the shore is, um, uh, I, 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 I love Little Ozzy, and I've been friends with him for a, long, for a long time. And Back then, I just said to him, look, I want to do an exclusive interview with Diego for the Daily Mirror. A lot of humming and hawing, but he said, look, turn up at the hotel, um, it's around about two, because we're leaving about four, um, and, you know, you might get half an hour with him. I'll, I'll, I'll sort that out for you for you so I turned up at two with a photographer and uh, we sat there uh, three o'clock nothing happened four o'clock nothing happened I said what's going on he said I don't know he said I can't ring he's taken the phone off the hook he usually likes sleep, and I think he's traveled from this friendly match and he's tired he's having a sleep I can't get to him and he said, but we've got to get, we get to the ground for the game. He said, I'm a bit worried. You know, we're going to leave before for five o'clock. Still no sign of it. I said, well, see, what he he? Oh, he said to me, very colourful English. You can <laughs> mm-hmm. as well, because there's no time for any interviews. That's it. I said, I said, Ozzie, I'm going to lose my job. I wasn't going to. I said, Ozzie, I could lose my job. We've got back page, spread inside, another spread on this great, exclusive interview with Diego Maradona that you promised me. Now you're me to her off. You said, well, it's no chance. Anyway, half past five, and don't forget, it's got to be from central London to, to north London to play in this match, half past five. Suddenly, the lift burst open. Out of it came 40 people. You know that old thing about how many people can you get in a mini? Well, yeah. it was how many people can you get in a lift? I've never seen so many come out. Came Ozzy, out came Diego, his wife, his manager, his master, his entourage, his, his, his friends. Everyone was going out, they poured all at once. And he's right, off we go. I said, Ozzy, he said, uh, I said, um, picture, picture. I said, I said oh, come on, picture. No, Ozzy took us outside the hotel, lined us up, and I still have a picture. I'm show you it here. <laughs> outside the hotel me and my youth Diego's first wife and Ozzy and then he said right off you go I said no, no, I what about this there's no time we aren't going to make the kickoff so um he said come on come on so he got he he got in his car Diego got in the um passengers in the um seat next to Ozzy who was driving I got in the back seat and we set off in the car driving to the game and I asked for an hour all the questions I wanted to and Aussie translated and I'm sitting there taking all the notes and, and we get then we get into Seven Sisters Road have you ever been in the Seven Sisters Road they the all-by-heart lane days a half hour before kickoff, bumper to bumper nothing moving so we're sitting there and you can see in the other cars they're going that's Diego Maradona and Aussie. <laughs> can't be there. They must be warming up on the pitch. <laughs> anyway, I, I've got I've got all this story to file. No mobiles. So as we yeah. get into White Hart Lane, I said, Ozzy, you've got to let me out. He said, oh. I, said, I can't I, I can't sit here any longer. I've done my interview, I've got to get out and file it. Which I did. Got out of the car into the red phone box, pressed button B and phoned it over. Got to the game, time for the second half. No mobiles in those days. No, anyway, no, that's the story. But so I thought to myself, look, you know, how many people have had that amount of time and no. spoken to him at that great length about a variety of subjects. Um, and of course I went to the World Cup, um, uh, the World Cup where he played against England. And I went to the World Cup in the States where he was drug tested. And I went to the press conference when he was banned. Um, so um, I had quite a thought. I still think a good connection with him enough to write a proper book with an inside track about him.
2: Excellent. And like you say, not many people have uh, had that opportunity to speak to him at that you know at that great length and ask him those questions. And I think um,
0: I think none in the back of Aussie's car.
2: <laughs> yeah, no, that's right. With Aussie Ardiles as the translator, <laughs> don't think many people have had that opportunity. Um, just to finish us off then, because, look, I could speak to you, Harry, and listen to your stories for three hours easily. I could easily do it. Um, but I try to keep I'm trying to keep these shows to an hour regardless. We're trying to keep them short and sweet to want to make the people want more. Um, but I do want to talk to you about your book, uh, The Red Cards to Racism. Is
0: that your most recent book? Uh, Well, the most recent is the Maradona one, uh, right? A couple of months ago, Um, uh, but this one is out on the fifteenth of April. Ah, that's right. right. It's available pre-order now on Amazon. So
2: obviously, that uh, you know, racism within sport, racism within the world, has been a hot topic for the last probably, well, you know, this timeless subject, sadly, but it's particularly been uh, a hot topic within football over the last few years again. Um, Was that the kind of um, what instigated you to write this book or was it something that you had planned previously?
0: Well, you can see it. You can see it there. Um, That is a letter from Neil Kinnock in 1990, praising myself and the Daily Mirror for being the first people to ever raise the fact there was racism in English football. 1990. Jesus. And... Uh, I've got to tell you, I don't think anything has changed. It's just, well, anything has changed. I think the method of the abuse has changed obviously from the physical um, abuse that the supporters would give you inside the stadium to the social media abuse. Um, And um, many of the players I interviewed, one of them actually said to me, "The, the, the players, the modern players who are Complaining and, and every right to complain and should be complaining and raising these issues on the social media abuse is appalling. Um, it's, it's, it doesn't compare to what we used to get f- physically and verbally abused inside our own grounds. Roger. Um, so it, it's from first-hand experience. Uh, I thought it was worth writing this book. Uh, and I've interviewed many people. I think I think people will be shocked by some of the interviews been given in this book, yeah, uh, and I can only tell you, for example, um, there was someone uh, at the highest possible level of the Football Association, uh, who traveled to places, and we you know, we've got England in World Cup qualifiers in places like Albania, and we still see that kind of abuse in, in, in Eastern Europe as well, and the kind of pitiful punishments that UEFA hand yes. yeah. out, um, uh, when he. Raised the issue many, many years ago. He was told by uh, country top officials, "Well, I don't know what you're money about. You know, that's you know part of the course. You shouldn't, you shouldn't complain." Um, uh, and um, the uh, the person I'm, I'm talking about was actually uh, Jewish, and one of the uh, uh, UEFA officials said to him. Um, uh, I wonder why Hitler didn't finish the job. No, and asked him, um, asked him why um, he chose to be Jewish. Did you choose to be Jewish? Is it because you get extra extra holidays?
2: Jesus Christ! This and this. If you've got someone from UEFA with that attitude, saying appalling things like that nothing will ever change ever because the people at the very top that
0: illustrates illustrates why it won't change it's uh jesus
2: that's that's really shocking
0: i think the book will shock
2: you yeah i am i am most definitely going to read it and then you know maybe we can get together again and talk about it once i've read it i'd really like that if you've got the time because um that's one which i'm gonna uh i'm gonna order that now actually but um like I said at the start of the show, Harry, there's so, so much that you've achieved and so much that you've done throughout your career and your life. Um, it's difficult to fit all that into an hour. So I've tried to touch on uh, as much as I can. Well, but also, I just I really enjoy listening to you, you know, talk about your experiences and your stories.
0: Well, if you want to do a follow up on it, I, I haven't told you the stories about Johan Croyd Elton oh, Joanne well. um, many about Robert Maxwell. Um, uh, there's quite a few.
2: So yeah, maybe we should do a part two. If you'd be, uh, if you'd be up for that, I'd be quite, uh, quite interested in doing a second part.
0: More than happy to.
2: That'd be amazing. Um, right, Harry, it's been an absolute pleasure as ever. Uh, guys, I encourage you to check out uh, Harry's books. They're all available on Amazon. Um, I will drop some links in the description below to, to the most recent books, the Maradona book and the Show Racism, the Red Card book, which is out on the 15th of April. Um, incredible work. And I also urge all football fans, but particularly Card City fans, uh, read the book about Emiliano Sala and you'll be shocked uh, by the actions of s- certain people. But um, why, what I love about that book, Harry, is uh, it's all factual. Um, there's no speculation it is purely uh, based on fact and things that happened unfortunately that's going to upset certain people at certain times but that is the way of life um guys you can subscribe to youtube.com slash ace podcast nation and uh, of course spread the words follow us on social media and then uh, we'll be back next sunday for another episode of uh, my story and of course we have a live football show every monday and we have a live championship show every friday and, uh, and we also do mma and boxing and, and all sorts with special guests and uh, some of the biggest names in the uk but uh, until then we uh, we bid you farewell harry harris it has been my pleasure thank you very much
0: thank you sir my pleasure too. i got into soul i'm a true collective ball famous number one desirable
1: i do what i want when i want and how i want it leave <laughs> you with the one in yeah year. i got My true collective Famous, social famous, number one desirable I do what I want when I want And how I want it Leave you without wanting me, yeah That's how I roll. I got teachers, so I don't care about my gold Better, so much better Flipping, incredible Always on the show, So they know that I still got it And I never feel sorry, yeah Top of the world Top of the world Yeah, yeah Top of the world
2: Podcast Network.